Jazz. <laughs> Welcome to Jazz Bastard something. What what is what <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know either. It's 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 an episode. It's got a number. It's ninety four, I think. I think it's ninety four. Wow. Yeah. Every time it's it's an achievement. And this is a weird one because I kind of picked we thought we we're gonna have to do one pretty quickly with, with not very much prep time. And then because we lost the podcast, we keep complaining about losing last time and had to redo the Gato one. We ended up with three weeks to listen to these works. And I kind of, you know, I don't know. I felt like they're fairly simple and straightforward. So hopefully you didn't get too tired of them. I, I listened to them less than you might have thought simply because of travel for two weeks. So uh, I honed in on them in the last day or two. But I so, yeah, well. Explain to them the, the premise. Explain the premise of today's podcast. So that, that will account for my relative posture as uh, Robin to your Batman this week. Okay, well... As uh, opposed to every other week when I'm Robin to your Batman. But I'm wearing the nipple suit then, so it's different. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes Robin's a girl. but That's true. Not on this podcast. So I just picked up a fair amount of vinyl, as I, I want to do. And thought, well, let me pull out some recent dubs I made of things that largely I, I liked pretty well. Some of them are by familiar faces, and some of them are artists that we haven't talked about a lot, but maybe we're familiar with. I think probably, and I like to save them for the end, the the least known artist to us was probably Al Haig, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I'd say that's fair. But what I did was then just pick some of these records I'd bought, and one thing I'm, I'm probably going to be thinking about aloud is whether that was a good idea. <laughs> I think largely, you know, it worked out. They're not all pristine in terms of the quality of, of the particular example of the record, but I like the music on them. So anyway, the selections I picked, Art Farmer's Sing Me Softly of the Blues from 1965. And we'll be talking a little bit about the backing band there because uh, it's. I, I think this is a really good live date. We'll see what you thought of it. And then another live date from 85 by the Don Pullen George Adams unit. And we have talked about Mr. Pullen and Mr. Adams before, so this is a return visit, just as we talked about Art Farmer before. And a guest star here, John Schofield, and I don't think we've talked about John. In fact, I'm thinking we should do a guitar episode or two coming up. I just feel like we haven't done that much, aside from Jim Hall with Jazz Guitarist. I think we've mentioned Bill Frizzell, but anyway, uh, just a thought. This is a live date from 85, live at Montmartre? Mm-hmm close That's correct good job and i think it's a burner and then another one from the mid 80s 1984 depends on how you mean the word burner but yes i, oh, I okay think i might agree okay <laughs> well we'll see there and then an ecm joint 1984 kenny wheeler the trumpet player who was born in canada but emigrated to england double w amazing cast on that one pretty much all stars and then finally al Haig. Piano Interpretations from 1976, and Al is a, from the bebop generation. You can hear him extensively on live broadcasts from the Savoy. Now, let me try again. From at the Royal Roost, there is a set of music that Charlie Parker... Uh, okay, one more time. Let's reboot. Let's reboot Pat. I think the problem is I'm not drinking tonight. That's always bad. <laughs> uh, anyway. It's, it's Thursday instead of our usual it Friday. It is. I'm just 40, not in the groove. So. So anyway, Al Haig, piano player, played with Charlie Parker, 
most of the recordings you can hear them on are from a set of Charlie Parker music recorded at the Royal Roost Air Checks live stuff. And about three discs of that, most of those recordings he's on. So he's not in the famous quintet that was Duke Jordan, but Al Haig did do a lot of playing with him. And then he went on to have a career intermittently until his death, which was 82. Okay, so do you have a preference as to where we start? I'd like to save Al, but other than that, I don't really... I don't care. Go where, go where you wish. Why don't we start with um, Art Farmer, because I probably have less to say about that than you do. So. Okay, sure. So Art Farmer, Sing Me Softly, The Blues, 1985 on Atlantic. So what do, what do you think about this one? Um, well, uh, first of all, tell me why, uh, in, in each case, I think, I'd like you to tell me why you thought this would be a good thing to purchase on vinyl. We've talked a little bit about this before, but it wouldn't hurt for us to talk about it again. You know, just can you say, before we even talk about art, can you say something briefly about the audiophile's argument for vinyl? What and is I, that? which I don't know that it applies to these. There is a belief, and it's interesting because it seems to have percolated out of the general public. I was talking to a woman in this ensemble with me, and I said, well, I, I buy vinyl records. And she said, you still got a record player? Do they make those anymore? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, they make hundreds of them. I mean, this is a big, it's a big market segment now. And somebody, I, she or one of the other members said, well, it, it is supposed to sound better on vinyl. So there's some kind of general sense now, which is interesting because... If you buy a Crosley LP player at your trendy store that sells vinyl and, and record players, you know, if you get one of those, I can't imagine it would sound better, right? It's a $50 record player. But if you get one that's Audio-Technica or whatever for a couple hundred bucks, yeah, it, 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 there's an argument to be made that it sounds more natural. And there's been a lot of questions. The guys that think way too hard about this believe that digital music is, is faulty in the time domain, that it does not reproduce the timing of music quite correctly enough, and that the argument is made that evolutionarily speaking, our ears are extraordinarily attuned to that as a survival mechanism from when we were being chased by saber-toothed tigers. And so we notice it subconsciously and for some reason like vinyl better. Oh, that, is there any argument to be made for warmth of sound or digital, sorry, um, for dynamics being better on vinyl than on digital recordings? Well, it's weird. I mean, yeah, often the sound is warmer in part because the range is, is theoretically lower. I, I don't know all the science behind it. In terms of dynamic range, I, I, I think that probably digital can, can go more broadly, the difficulty has been, and we've talked about this before, that for a while there, for about 20 years, music, and at that time was largely digital, there was this movement towards loudness, the thought right. that the louder you mastered a recording, the more the attention it would get on the right. Well, basically, that, that people do tend to like louder sounds better. It sounds better to them. Right. So anytime people are testing equipment, they're very careful to like get a decibel meter out and make sure that they're listening to different pieces of equipment at the same level because if you don't then you know one will sound better just on the basis of that but they were doing these things where they 
quashed the dynamic range so everything would be loud. Right. And if you look at digital files of some of this music, it looks like a black bar. There aren't right. really peaks and valleys. Right. Well, now... Especially in the early CD era, oh, yeah. a lot of stuff right. was really uh, badly. And, and, of course, the early CD era, it's an emergent technology... Uh, I shouldn't say early. I should say like after the very first flush of CDs. Right, you yeah, can that's always true. tell. Yeah, the first couple of years of CDs in the mid-'80s, there was still dynamic range. And then right. suddenly right. it's gone. Yeah. And, and you know, so there's a number of issues. Uh, some people argue that the, 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 the sound quality, the sampling rate, is not high enough on a compact disc to be effective. Others say that even right. an MP3 is, you know, cannot be identified apart from a high-resolution music file that might be five or ten times larger in terms of data than even a compact disc. So, you know, there's a lot of debates about it. Some vinyl records sound really good. I mean, my story about it is is that our mutual friend Paul bought me what he thought was an art piece to hang on my wall, which was Sweet Nighter by Weather Report, and I was playing it on this $200 Japanese turntable, and it sounded really fucking good. (laughs) And for whatever, I've said this before, for whatever reason, Weather Report's music sounds... 10 times better on vinyl. I don't know. I mean, I, I would not say this about everybody's. I just know. But but in this case, for whatever reason, that that period of music on that label, that group, they just sound better. I don't know why. And I, I'm not going to argue as an absolutist. I mean, basically, if you like shopping for music and you've got that hunter-gatherer mentality, if you go into a record store with old used records, you'll run across things that you know you don't own. And that, to me, is a smarter way to do it. The stupid thing, which I often do sometimes as well, is you buy new reissues of music that you probably already have and the hopes that the format either will sound better or look, it's it's, it's purple record, so look how pretty it is. You know, I mean, whatever irrational. Now, sometimes with, yeah. with CDs, like the examples that I'm familiar with are, you know, when Steely Dan remastered all of their albums sequentially because they were just mastered for shit when they were released. And they, you know, got back the tapes and redid them. And there is a significant difference, even to my ears, when you listen to the remastered CDs. It's even on CD, you can tell. Yeah. So, and and um, they'll do this. And, you know, some record reissues, the fancy ones, will try to go back to the master tape. Right. And so records you might have bought back in the first flush of vinyl, if you're old enough to remember that, may have gone through several generations. They weren't necess- It was a mass market product. Now the new ones tend to be cottage industry things where they really are, they, they know the audience buying them is probably attuned to sound, right? It's a minority of people who have made a hobby of this. Maybe you want a physical tactile product just because music has become a utility that you turn on and off and you can't hold or own if you do it, consume it the normal ways that people do now, streaming. And so they the pay super attention. And there are some examples that are just fantastic. You know, the sounds they get. Now, they make, you know, these products can range from 20 to $50 an album, depending on how you get them. Now, these are all used. I mean, these were ones I just got from the bins. And a couple of them, including this one, I was interested in it. I knew it's like, okay, this has got to be rare because they want like 20 or 30 bucks for this. And it was a very reasonably priced record store. So I assumed, I, I don't know, I haven't double checked, but this may not be in print on CD. It's an Atlantic album. I, I don't think art was associated with them for long. So they, they kind of set it off as this is one of our special ones. They had it up on the wall. And I felt bad. As so come. that was a, that was a question turning now to this, right. this and the releases as we go forward. Right. So this is available as a CD through uh, Atlantic. Oh, okay. Should have looked. Uh, a digipack they released in 1998. But for 33 years, it was only available as a vinyl LP. Atlantic re-released it as a mono in 1992, okay, uh, a mono vinyl and LP, 
and then uh, yeah, Digipack in 1998. So that's kind of interesting. So yeah, that was the question I wanted to ask you. Because and I, of course, I, I'm a, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, I I, I don't know whether it, whether that is still in print. Right, that makes right, sense. Right. In other words, that CD issue may be itself hard right. to track down if they didn't. Some because some labels um, just don't cultivate their their back catalog. Anyway, yeah. So sorry. what I wanted to ask you then was when you are at the used music store in the vinyl section and you're sort of thumbing through, is it is it just like for something like this? Was it simply the price? You looked at it and you said, and you were you knew that you were in a particularly good store and you were like, hey. They must. This must be something worth having. You know, is that kind of how it goes, or are there? Was this an album where you said, "Oh, I like Art Farmer. He's pretty reliable. I haven't heard of this." Like, what factors go into right. buying this on vinyl? Yeah, this particular one was because I, I don't. I'm not somebody who collects music with the thought I'm going to buy something and flip it, or right. I, I'm going to make a collection that I, I want to have valued a certain amount. I, I am a pragmatic music consumer. I, I just like to listen to music, so that's what I'm looking for. So this one, well, they're setting it out in a way that's implying this is out of print. I did not check, but I'm, I'm so that's interesting. And then, okay, Art Farmer, I like him. Oh, this group. Okay, I'd like to hear this group with Art Farmer. Interesting personnel. Yes. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Oh, yeah. and two Carla Blay songs out of six. Right. Okay, I guess I'll spring for the 30 bucks. I mean, that was that was a thought process there. Was it, when I brought it home, you know, a lot of record stores anymore, I feel like a lot of them must have gotten record cleaning machines because I'll, I'll bring them home. They seem pretty pristine. This one, no, no, not at all. I mean, it was filthy. It was almost unplayable. So I put it in this little bath and, and it's still noisy, but... And I was not necessarily, I I know when I get a used record, I might be getting a Sonic Spectacular, but I might also be getting a noisy piece of junk. And you don't know from looking, I I don't don't have a way of looking at vinyl to know, you know, some that looks absolutely mirror-like pristine sounds like crap. And some that looks like, you know, the dog has been walking over it is fine. It's it's mysterious to me, but visually I have no sense. So this, I thought I'm taking a risk here. It was noisier than I would have liked, though it got a hell of a lot better after I gave it a little bath, but... I was really interested in the personnel, and I ended up liking the recording a lot. I don't know how you felt about it, but it may be one of my favorite Art Farmer recordings. Interesting. I, okay. um, so, yeah, my reaction to it is I've listened to a fair amount of Art Farmer and more uh, because of the podcast in the last couple of years. I do like this, and, yeah, I agree with you. The The fact that it has Blay personnel on here, right? So uh, you should say who the personnel are, uh, Swallow sure. and, and Kuhn. And uh, Pete LaRocca are the Pete LaRocca didn't never worked with Blay though, did he? No, no. I mean, what this group? What fascinates me is the same year, 1965, on Blue Note with Joe Henderson on tenor, under Pete LaRocca's name, they released Basra, right. which is one of those rare yeah. little known Blue Notes that everybody who knows about it kind of loves. Yeah. And features one of the same songs uh, on it as as this album has. And I think they may have done something else together. So they were kind of a young rhythm section. They're about 10 years younger than Art Farmer, all of them, on the move. And, of course, Swallow ends up working extensively with Blay and eventually marrying her and is still married to her. So there's that connection. And didn't Kuhn work with her? Uh, isn't he associated with her? Or is he just associated with personnel associated with her? You know, I don't know. I don't okay. know. I mean, just obviously, Paul Blay, the pianist, did. She is a keyboard player, so most of the time she's playing right. the keyboard's inner group. I have suspected, I can't prove it, that Swallow was the one who suggested these numbers to Farmer. 
Uh, yeah, I would guess so too. He was always a champion of her music and was right. always turning people on. I think he he also was the one that hooked up Gary Burton with her for that genuine right. Tong funeral project. I think we'll get up with Swalla who kind of said, you got to look at this. And he's, he's listed as the arranger on this on at least one web source that I have. So that makes perfect sense that he brought these tunes to Farmer. Yeah, uh, and it is in general, I think, a, a really good set list. I, they, you know, another thing I ended up liking about this record is it's a six-song, thirty-five-minute set, and I think every song is strong. Tears is the one that also appears on Basra, yes. which is just a really good. Yeah, but you know, it closes with the blues, one for Majid or whatever. But even that, the head is is unpredictable and memorable and kind of complicated and there's a the petite bell is kind of a neat ballad i just i just think it's a very very strong set of music and it hangs together very well i mean this is a live album that to me tells a story the way some of the best studio albums does so i mean there is a drum solo but what can you do you know yeah well what i what i like about it is and this this will be a way of contrasting it i think with the don pull and george adams state what i like about it is this is an unlikely collection of of players. I wouldn't think Farmer in this setting necessarily. So it's a somewhat unlikely collection of players that hangs together really, really well. Like th- this comes off really, really well. And you said something. I think it's right. Unpredictable. This is unpredictable. The title cut and also ad infinitum, which is kind of scary. <laughs> they're 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 really unpredictable like you don't know you, you're not quite sure you, when they, when you hear them you don't think oh i know exactly what this is like, yeah i know i know where we're going you don't know where you're going and there's a lot of restraint here it seems to me um in spite of la Roca's drum solo there's on especially on his part i think a fair amount of restraint he's he's pushing things along without actually dominating the proceedings which i i like and a uh, farmer just seems to kind of rise and float above everything, you know. I mean, he's such a he's such a pretty player. He's a, he's got a really nice melodic sense. Um, I really like him on flugelhorn. He just has a sort of warm tone, but he's not. He doesn't have a kind of burbly slow feel. Yeah. Like he's bop trained, so he can play a brisk flugelhorn. But he doesn't in in playing briskly. He doesn't lose. He does, he never seems to have to sacrifice the kind of robust round, full tone that he gets on that horn, and it just makes this whole thing kind of unpredictable and exciting and odd in in pleasurable ways. Obviously, some of the songs here are better suited for him, but that's okay. Uh, he seems to just kind of go with the flow and rise above the stuff that you might not think would be kind of in his wheelhouse. It's it's a really nice set. I agree with you. I don't I, I probably don't like it as much as you do, but it is surprising. I mean, I, that's the word I would use most. It's consistently surprising. When you look at the date and you see it's farmer and you, you know, you look at the label even, you think you know what you're going to get and you're wrong. Yeah, it's about as far out of his comfort zone as art will go now. On an album like Blame It on My Youth, there are some progressive undercurrents there. And there are some, because I was listening to a fair amount of Farmer just trying to contextualize this. God knows we had time. And it's a really, really strong album. And obviously it's, it's, it's studio done and certainly a lot better sounding than especially this vinyl dub that I made you. But he is more exploratory. He's never going to be an avant-garde or harsh player. But the shapes he's playing are maybe a little less typical. Yeah. And 
the group as a whole, I just think is very simpicato. And again, I can't stress enough that to me, one of the crucial questions when you're listening to lots and lots and lots and lots of jazz is what are they playing? What's the material they're using? Are there interesting bases for the improvisations or is it just kind of cookie cutter stuff? And I felt like most of these tunes had something strong to recommend them. I, I love the play tunes on this. I mean, they're some of my favorite play tunes. They're just really neat. And by the way, if you want to, all her stuff, or at least a huge portion of it, is available for free as sheet music from one of her sites. So <laughs> she's got it posted, so I, I can look up the head piece to this. And if you look at something like Odd Infinitum, I mean, it's it doesn't look at all complicated. It's not like there's tons of notes it's just the progression and the place it's traveling and, and the kind of building repetition with difference is just, it's just very different. I mean, she's just, she's playing at a different level than most composers. She can come up with things that just would not occur to the general run of, of people writing in the jazz idiom. And I love it. I, I love this tune. So that, that makes a difference. Yeah. I don't know if it's, if in some ways is Joe Henderson a more yeah typical That's person a- to put here. Yeah. He's the right generation. He's a little mm-hmm. bit more inside outside. I think Bosper is probably always going to be the better known product by this group from this year, and it's probably overall the better. But I, you know, I like this a lot, and of course, part of it too is that when you spent thirty bucks, you want to like something. You know, you're going to try your best. It's like, well, should I have bought this? You know, and so at least if nothing else, because I was a little afraid. I mean, this the good personnel and and good tunes and everything else. Yeah, so I was pleasantly surprised because those elements together don't guarantee a good product. I mean, it could have been a a very unsuccessful date given the different kind of i don't know philosophies about music between the rhythm section and art but yeah. Yeah, i thought it worked worked okay so anyway it was a neat discovery and it is up there for me i think it, partially just because of the tunes and partially because i kind of liked hear art pushing things a little bit you know, he's never yeah. going to go crazy it's but yeah don cherry sounds aren't coming from art anytime soon but well, so for this one i would say goodbye patrick all Good right job. so so, so for this one we'll say we'll say goodbye not goodbye is, yes. that, is that what you're going to say to the don yes. Pullen, <laughs> George? let's adams? go to don Pullen and george adams next shall we Patrick, what were you thinking when you saw this at the, uh, did you get it at a same place or a different place or what? God, I can't tell you. I'm so promiscuous. I I can't even tell you where I've been. You're such a musical slut. You you spread yourself far and wide. Was it St. Louis? Yes. (laughs) Was it somewhere else? God only knows. Yeah. One thing I found is that, you know, I heard a lot about how big this group was and I thought, well, you know, I really haven't seen back in the day i felt like much product from them and there are a lot of various lps out there on smaller labels that clearly you know people picked up and then sold and often they're fairly pristine so my guess is they got something that was a little wilder than they bargained for and this one was certainly a very clear copy and of course for me the the big question mark the thing that interested me in it was and john schofield you know Mm -hmm. i just wasn't quite sure what i was going to get there 
So this is that quartet with Danny Richmond on drums and a really good guy playing bass whose name I wrote down and I can find Cameron it. Brown. Thank you so much. So so wait, is this a regular I know that Pullen and Adams work together. Is this their regular rhythm section? It is, yeah. Okay. Just yeah. I needed to confirm that before I render okay. my verdict. Go okay. <laughs> Mike is ready to, he's got his little judge's wig on. He's got the Cameron. I've got the black cap on. Okay, all right. <laughs> so foreshadowing tells me you didn't like this so much. No, I did not. Now, we, we were going to have to give Pullen a rest after this. We've done, by my count, at least three and possibly four albums featuring him at this point, right? New Beginnings, Sixth Sense, Capricorn Rising. Is that right? So, is that I think correct? you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so I this, knew, is my, was, this is our fourth Pullen. He, he was, yeah, we're, we're, we've got to stop Pullen. We've yeah, got to um, stop Pullen. Yeah, it was a callback, and I knew that. Just as with Farmer, we've talked about him a lot. And again, the the original justification of this, we'll do an easy one because we've only got five days, and then it turned out we, we had plenty of time. We so. had a lot more time. So um, these guys work together a lot, and this is my first time listening to these two guys. And my initial sense is this is a really fucking weird pairing because so far as I can tell, just on the basis of this outing, and I'm going to ask you about this in a second, we know that Don Pullen is that strange hybrid cat who can play in and out and I think is more comfortable playing out. I mean, that's where his energies and his excitement tend to lie, it seems to me. At least I'm more captivated by his outside playing than his inside playing. George Adams is a kind of big burly tenor with like one foot in soul and the other in hard bop and does not seem to be out in the least. So on the face of it, it seems like a weird pairing to me. Have you heard other things by these two guys? And in, in your in your view, is this a productive pairing in general or an odd one? Well, they, they were worked together for, I want to say, I read somewhere, I think over 12 years. So clearly there was some kind of connection uh, in their mind. I think Adams, I, I think you're right. I think he is a little wilder and woolier than you're suggesting. He's got a couple yeah. Eiler moves in his bag. Now, when we talk about that, the difficulty is there's Eiler and there's also Michael Brecker, Lenny Pickett school of, you know, soul squealing, right? And right. sometimes those blur a bit. Adams is certainly nowhere near the pristine technician that a Michael Brecker is. No. He's a lot shaggier. Um, yeah, I think that's a good term. Shaggy, woolly, those are all words. Yeah, yeah. Use. You know, I, And I like him. Don't get okay, me wrong. Okay. Uh, he, he's, he's not my issue here. So you've heard other things by these two guys, yeah, and in well, general think, you like the pairing? Well, actually I didn't at first. It took me a long time to kind of find a way, especially towards Poland, because of that weird dichotomy right. we talked about between the Cecil Taylorisms and the soul moves. Right. And I do think at times... I. The, the, the thing with pulling soloing is is when he starts banging, one bang's a lot like another bang. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, you feel like when he gets into that gear, it, it can be a little hard, at least for the neophyte, to distinguish when he's doing it really well and, and not. Okay. But I, I guess I didn't feel, to me, in this live sec course, it seemed to actually make more sense because this was like this 
live band grooving on what were finally fairly accessible basic tunes, but with this willingness to get messy and get wild and get woolly. That's a one way of putting it. Okay. Um, all right. So now, so one last question before <laughs> I right. before I tell you my issues with this album. We, we um, will the cross-examination end your Yes, honor. we're in the cross-examination stage. So Danny Richmond, who is Mingus's? Who's, uh, who's long-time? Sure, yeah. Yeah, he's Mingus's long-time drummer. And I think the world of Danny Richmond. Danny Richmond and Cameron Brown are the regular rhythm section for these guys. I'm sure that Richmond was in their group. I don't know that he was every recording, but I think he was okay. listed as one of the regular members. Couldn't swear about the bass player, but I think that's right. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna swear about the bass player here. Okay. Right now. So swear away. Uh, yeah, I th- this album really really gets on my nerves. I don't know who to blame. The guy who you know recorded this. This must have been recorded straight from the soundboard, right? It's a live date. So uh, you know the bass. Is elect it's the bass is filtered as electric, right? And I fucking hate that sound, and I really hate it here. I can't decide who to whose fault it is. If it's Cameron Brown's fault or if it's the uh, recording engineer's fault, but the sound is really muddy all the way through. And the electrics, and here I'm going to include the bass and Schofield's guitar and the electrics are really, really muddy. And finally, in the sort of trifecta of, as far as I'm concerned, sound fuck-ups on this album, the drums are mic'd terribly. I, Danny Richmond might as well be playing in a closet. You can hardly hear him. Yeah, I would agree with that, yeah. Um, and that's a real problem here. I, I, I have notes that I, that I wrote on here at times, and I think my favorite note uh, <laughs> is with the song entitled, Well, I Guess We'll Never Know. And I think that the title refers to Cameron Brown's tempo. I, I think this song should be called Guess the Tempo. And maybe at, at some point it would be nice if he picked one and just kind of <laughs> stuck with it for a while. He and Richmond, on most of the songs on this album, do not feel in sync at all. And I mean at all. And Brown seems to shift tempos to me whimsically like he he will just pick up tempo and richmond is still doing what he's doing in back of him and i don't know whose fault this is i don't know if they can't hear each other i don't know if richmond's been so badly recorded that it sounds like he and brown are out of sync but they sound out of sync to me and at certain points it felt to me like don pullen just says fuck it and I'm going to play out to overcome the nonsense going on behind me. And every time he did, I felt like cheering. I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> I can't hear that shit behind you. I mean, I, I really, really hate. And I don't know, like I said, I don't know if it's how it's been recorded and mixed. I don't know if it's Cameron Brown. I, I lean toward Brown, but, I, you know, who knows? I just hate the way Richmond and Brown play together here. I don't think they're in sync at all on the very first number which kind of starts as a, starts out as a very up-tempo hard bop right kind we, of frantic uh, yeah kind of frantic we get this electric bass and guitar interchange to start adams comes in on tenor to restore some order at around the three minute mark and then at the four and a half minute mark pull in comes in and he's playing inside for the most part on this solo and 
there is no liftoff here. And throughout this song, the rhythm section sounds almost out of control. Like they're playing just too fast. They just aren't in control of this tempo. And then it gets messier on Flame Games, it seems to me. Bass and drum open and piano and guitar. Nice little melody from Adams. I hate the fact that Schofield, starting on this song and throughout the rest of the album, will interject little electronic fills around what other people are playing. I wanted to shoot him. I was like, <laughs> stop that. That seems extreme, but okay. Well, it was just, you know, you could, you know, yeah, yeah. Have yeah. These, and I'm like, will you stop that? Just stop that. Just stop. Play rhythm, but don't do that. I mean, his fill stuff around the edges is really irritating to me. And on that number, on Flame Games, when Pullen comes in at about the six-minute mark, I have the sense that he says, fuck it. And he starts to get a little bit outside on his solo. It's like he's, he's going to get above the fray. And then Schofield's guitar comes in at about 7.45. And at that point, the melody and the rhythm just go to shit. And the whole thing starts to move toward noise, which would be cool if you thought they were planning it. <laughs> but I don't think they're planning it. I mean, I, I don't think this is a, you know, let's have a freak out. I think this is, we, we fucked up. I mean, the outro is just really sloppy. That doesn't bode well. And then the next two numbers are just fucking train wrecks. I mean, they're, they're just hot, sloppy messes. And on both of those numbers, it feels to me like the piano solos increasingly go out in order to just cover up whatever the fuck it is that the rhythm section is doing behind them. I mean, they just sound out of sync. Um, mm. Richmond's cymbal work doesn't sound at all in sync with Cameron Brown's bass, which seems almost willfully to pick up and slow down at various points in the numbers. And you still have Schofield doing these little guitar fills that I find explosively annoying. So the only thing that's mildly redeeming here is the end, Song Everlasting. They go to a kind of slow ballad. The rhythm section almost sounds like they're together on this one. We get a bass solo at about the ninth minute of the song. My comment on this was, why? And then the album kind of ends. So if you ask me, Patrick, my verdict on this one is goodbye. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, did you like the play? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I did not like this album very much at all. And I, I want to try another Pullen Adams album in the hopes that it's just the live thing and the recording, you know, is the problem because I have and I even the nights. Yeah, I mean, I think Richmond is awesome, and I, you know, Schofield just doesn't fit here. I, I don't think that was a happy. I don't think that was a happy addition. This, yeah, this is not. I, I don't. He doesn't fit. He doesn't fit here. It seems to me at all. So, so I'm trying to think. I, I got a set of Pullen stuff on Black Saint, but I think most of that is not quartet stuff but there's a george adams black saint set and i think that does have several albums where he's together with pullen and and i think i feel like many of the albums on that blue note set that i got that we discussed one album from feature adams so yeah there's a lot out there yeah it's interesting i've often noticed you're much more of a bottom-up listener than i am i tend to focus on the top more so i don't know i guess for me the kind of pell-mell almost out of control energy didn't bother me nearly as much. Now that said, I, I probably need to sit down and focus more on what those guys are doing. I got to admit, I, I never heard Danny Richmond and I listened to it on, <laughs> on headphones. I listened to it on speakers. I'm like, 
and a yeah, lot I had of fellows... to turn it way up to hear him. Yeah, oh. it's it's not a masterpiece of live recording by any stretch. I was just curious to hear Schofield. I agree, he does not blend well, and I think that other people that have talked about the record point that out. His introductions didn't bother me so much, but this is certainly not prime Sco, and we should. As I said, we probably should look at some guitarists at some point. I feel like we just haven't done much of that. And we really, we've talked some about Metheny, a little bit about Frizzell, but the, that holy trinity of guitar players from roughly our generation, you know, Schofield, Metheny, Frizzell, who are now kind of the old, the old guard with people like Kurt Rosenwinkel coming up. Mm. We haven't looked a lot of their stuff, so maybe someday we'll do that. And of course, Schofield I got to know on Decoy, uh, Miles Davis's album, right. which I'm okay. extremely fond of, but he's, he's much more tamped down there. This is a young Sco, a Sco who's just kind of uh, going where the Sco goes. And he's roughly 10 years younger than these guys, who both unfortunately died in their 50s. They, they mm, yeah. had short, short lives. So yeah, I, I guess I liked it better for the energy and just the weirdness of the, of the mix and trying to get a sense of this group in that situation. And, and, and I guess I felt like this taught me more about their populist leanings. I'd heard more of the artsy stuff and the blue note stuff is kind of tamped down and, and aseptic. It's just not, it's not the best era of blue note. So I was curious to hear it. That said, yeah, you know, I like it better than you do, but I agree there's problems with this record. It is not, it's not a prime example. I would not put at the top of the heap. So we'll, we'll have to keep looking. We probably won't talk about it on the podcast, but we'll have to keep looking for pulling Adam stuff and, and see if we can find something you like better. So the next selection is by Kenny Wheeler. Kenny Wheeler. And yeah, he's he died fairly recently. I want to say. Oh, really? Thirteen, must, fourteen? Yeah. He's been in his sixties, right? No, no, he was eighty something. He really? He's yeah. that old? Yeah. Let me see. I because I, I had plenty of time for notes this time. So he was born back in nineteen thirty. Good God! So, so to give you an idea, ten years older than Pullen and Adams, twenty years older than Schofield, roughly the same age. Well, actually, let's see here. Farmer's born twenty-eight. So he's the same generation as Art Farmer. Very much. And with an absolute killer mid-80s ECM lineup, Mike yeah. Brecker on tenor sax, Dave Holland on bass, Jack DeJanet on drums, and John Taylor, who I thought stood out pretty well on this recording on yeah. piano. I had not heard of him, but apparently he was one of the three people along with Kenny Wheeler and a vocalist who formed Azimuth. And I've never oh. heard their stuff. But it was this, I assume, kind of drifty, artsy trio from the 70s that recorded on ECM and elsewhere and I've just never they're kind of a cult small third stream small group jazz phenomena I'm sure that probably the Penguins love them but I, I've, I've just never explored their stuff but that's where the connection came from where he knew him and all the rest of course are kind of big players on the scene uh, who were recording extensively for ECM and elsewhere so what do you think of Double W? So in the last, I don't know, three or four years, I've, I've picked up a fair amount of Kenny Wheeler. I don't know, four or five albums at this point. It's probably a, a drop in his discography, which mm. I know is pretty large. And he plays on a lot of other people's stuff. Oh, okay. So. Anyway, I don't have a good grasp on him as a player. 
Um, like I don't have a good sense of him even having attended to this with some care. I will say this. This is an unexpected pleasure. It's a 1983 ECM date and... When you hear the first notes on, it's only got four cuts. And when you hear the first notes on Foxytrot, you think, right, here we go. Cue up the windswept Norwegian bleak landscape. <laughs> you see this nice, soft piano intro. And all of a sudden, at about minute 130, it turns into like a mid-tempo, not quite bop. I guess it is a Foxtrot. And everybody's all in, and we got this nice unison playing from uh, Wheeler and Brecker. And then we get uh, Wheeler solo at about the three-minute mark. And it's kind of fiery and kind of building and kind of pretty and kind of fun. I mean, I, I it's just – and I'm like, this is an ECM recording? It doesn't sound like an ECM recording at all. And if you think about it, I mean, Michael Brecker is not exactly ECM material. And – um it slows down a little bit, and uh, we get a little bass solo. And then Brecker comes in at about the 10.5-minute mark. And I don't know, uh, here on this particular album, his tone seems a little bit drier than it usually is. But he's in great form here. He really is, I don't know if I'd say this is peak Brecker, but it's awfully good. You've listened to way more Michael Brecker than I have. and Well, not a ton. I, I've never been a collector, but the, the album from ECM that I really knew him from was 8081 right, with Pat Metheny, and he's there with... Uh, Dewey Redman on right. also appears as a tenor player, and I've always loved that album. Right. Um, but, yeah, he's he's he's. Uh, how would you describe him? He is out of the hard bop school. Not even that, actually. Later, right? I mean, sort right. Of a, yeah, super technically proficient. He is, and we've talked about this before. Kind of the founder of what I think of as the New York soul right. school of tenor players. Yeah. But somebody who ultimately has got roots in Coltrane. Yes. And play very very fast. And at some point, this episode of The Next, I'll talk a little bit. I've been listening to the Brecker Brothers again, this kind of uh, sleazy funk group he was in with his brother Randy in the mm-hmm. 70s. So he, he does that. He, he's on hundreds of albums right. as a soloist. And we talked about a couple of his pop solos back in our yes. saxophone solo and pop episode. So, yeah, he, he doesn't record extensively for ECM. He seems a little bit hard edged yes. for what we think of as their kind of player. But I think he fits in well here. And Kenny Wheeler, it's funny, I can't, I don't think I've, I, the only recordings by him that I'm super aware of that I've got are this an Angel song that someone loaned me, which is a driftier uh, Yeah, and that's piece. more ECME. Uh, but I always think of, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard Kenny Wheeler's trumpet apart from the ECM sound, you know, that kind of cushion echoey sound. And I like him a lot as a player. Yeah. He's inventive. He's not real predictable. He's obviously lyrical. He tends to play mm-hmm. melodic fragments rather than lots of technical runs and melancholy, I guess, a little bit. I, a you little know. bit, but I, I think having Brecker here as a foil brings more energy from his playing than yes, I yeah. usually hear from him. So I think I have Fly by a Butterfly, something with the word window in the title. Okay. I have Angel Song. I have something. I have I have four or five things by wow. him. Okay. This is by far, among the recordings I have, the most engaged and energetic album on which he plays. Now, the second cut, which is a very short cut, Ma Bell or May Bell or whatever, only three minutes long. I mean, very slow trumpet intro and piano, total ECM intro perspective oblique
you're like, oh, right, that's an ECM date. I forgot. But it's only three minutes long. And then we get WW, which is a longer cut and also opens kind of melancholy with Wrecker and Wheeler trading. And then suddenly the rhythm section comes in at about the minute and a half mark and everything picks up. It just becomes this sort of brisk modal major key romp isn't quite right the word the right word but it's it's builds it's pretty fast and uh wheeler's solo at the two minute mark is really nice and brecker has a fine solo as well here uh, again kind of building picking up speed um, but the showpiece for the whole album has to be the final cut which is what 22 23 minutes long yeah it's a whole side and they yeah. divide it they subdivide it but they list it as one piece there and i didn't want to try to break it up with a needle drop so i just left it together right so what three for dream blue for Lou, mark time and again it starts out kind of ecm land almost lugubrious tenor sax opening with the piano and then every everyone kind of comes in at the 230 mark and then we get some nice unison playing over the rhythm section a piano solo and then like a whole new melody around the eight minute mark and the tempo picks up and brecker lays down a killer solo at about the 14 30 minute mark that was tight probably the highlight of the album for me and then a long kind of drum solo, which isn't bad because it's Jack DeJanet, you know, thoughtful and smart and restrained, even as it's a drum solo. Then we get the outro. Uh, this is a really unexpected ECM date. It's way more energetic than most ECM stuff and probably as energetic as ECM ever gets. And as I said, I think Wheeler is as energetic as I've heard him on any of the recordings I have. And I think all of this owes to the presence of Wrecker, who is, you know, a serious and brisk Coltrane style soloist in his own right and that's just what he brings to the table it helps that unlike the pull-in date the rhythm section here is the shit and they can go oh, yeah they can go anywhere and holland and the Jeanette are just in lockstep you couldn't have a better rhythm section they're just so good here the backing they give these two guys is fantastic so you never there's never a moment where you think oh shit what are they doing and it's beautifully recorded of course because it's ecm so this is a very fine album um and i it's probably at the top of my list now of uh kenny wheeler albums that i own and I, you know, it feels like an uncharacteristic Kenny Wheeler album to me. Again, I think he has a pretty long discography, and I've only got four or five things. But this is the most engaged and energetic of the lot, and I think I like it the best. So yeah, with, goodbye. Yeah, good deal. Okay. And I agree. I was real happy with this. I, I looked him up, and roughly it looked like he you record on every two- or three-year schedule, not that they came out that regularly, but if you kind of averaged it out. So not super prolific, but somebody who is on the scene for quite a long time since the 60s forward and always someone who, you know, when he died, the obituaries or whoever talked about him, you know, a little known player, this guy that few people had heard of, but had a pretty good reputation among musicians. Yeah, I, I did look up. There's one other ECM record I grew up with as a kid that I had, which was John Abercrombie's Night. And that has Brecker on it, as well as DeJanet and then Jan Hammer on uh, keyboards. So and that's like 84. So there seems to have been this period in the early 80s, at least, where Brecker was recording at least occasionally with ECM. And they seemed a little bit more interested in harder edged, more urban sounds, not we're not going to push it. It's ECM style, but more, not just drifting sound patterns or whatever. And I miss that ECM. But yeah, I like this record a lot. I mean, in terms of buying it on vinyl, I found that if, if the records were well cared for, 
ECM records from back in the day tend to sound very good and tend to have been pretty well made, I guess. They, they tend to kind of hold up pretty well, unless you've really abused them. This one certainly, I think, sounded gorgeous. In some ways, I've bought a couple recent ECM pressings, and those are noisier than the ones I have from the 80s. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, mm. guys, where's that factory you used to use? Because they were better. <laughs> Go back to there. And it, it's weird because a lot of people kind of associate them with the compact disc, even though they started in the 70s. It's, it's kind of a, a studio or a, a record label that, was kind of of the CD era. But in any case, I liked it. The only other Wheeler leader date I've got is this Angel song, which is very, very different. Yeah. I do like it. It's it's one with Lee Konitz on it, and it's yes. and Bill Frizzell, and it's extremely, I think, no drummer. Right. And it's all about, it's interesting, because like all music hates it. They give it like two stars, just really crapped on it. And I think it's either you believe they got the float going and it's this beautiful drifting thing or you're just bored out of your fucking mind by it. And I I love it. I think it does. I think it succeeds in getting the float going. But that's very hard to achieve. You can't have a bad bass player in that case. (laughs) It just doesn't work. But it's much slower, more introspective, more pastel, more traditional ACM by far. This one, I think it's still got that sound to it. It's just there's an edge. The theory must be that Manfred didn't only stay for the first three minutes of the song, and then he's out of the room, guys. Let's freak out. (laughs) Okay, we can stop this crap. I I, I think actually the case was it's just they were a little bit harder edge, a little bit more open to forward propulsion on on recordings back in the 80s than they are now. And again, I, I miss those days. But I liked it a lot, and I just thought personnel looked good. I didn't have much Wheeler, and ECM pressings can often be real treats if it's a good session. I mean, obviously, ECM made a lot of stuff that's kind of middle of the road, not so great, as any prolific label does. But So I'm glad you like that one. So we're going to end up with a complete impulse purchase. It was probably 5 bucks. Nice. I had probably, I think, one session of various tracks Al Haig did back in the late Bebop years, Stan Getz and others, but didn't really have any leader dates by him. And I thought, well, this looks like a nice piano recital of some well-known tunes. Let's take a shot at it. It's like $5. What the fuck? And so I picked up Al Haig's Piano Interpretations from 1976, I want to say, on the Seabreeze label. Just a small label that decided we should rediscover this guy. He'd been kind of out of out of action for a while. And the songs are right down the middle. I don't know. I guess In Your Own Sweet Way is, is probably Brubeck's best-known standard. It's a little odder than Here's That Rainy Day or Summertime. And then, you know, Don't You Know I Care is an old Duke Ellington song. That's one where he's kind of showing his hand that he's been around a while. So this is a guy born back in 1922 who died in 82. And it's just doing a series of piano interpretations. I know that probably touched a nerve with you after doing that massive trawl of solo piano. You know, it was was all right. I mean, this is a name. This is my first listen to Al Haig, unless heard him on other things, which I'm sure I know of. Yeah, Yeah, right. Right. But he, this is the first time attending to him. And I know that 
he was on my radar because he was someone who consistently one of his albums or two of his albums got the much coveted as it were coronet from the oh. Peng. I remember I had to kind of always carry on a little list in my wallet whenever I went to a, a record store of like, oh, make sure I see if I can find these, you know. And so for a long time, I knew, oh, he's got a coronet for such and such an album. Let me try and find that. But I never listened to any of him until now. So this is my first listen to him. First thing to say is uh, the sound is a little muddy. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't know what kind of a piano he's playing, but it, it hasn't been treated kindly by any time. <laughs> It's not Sun Ra bad. It hasn't been set on fire and put out by being thrown into a muddy river. But it is, it's, it doesn't sound great. The thing that he reminded me of most, and this is probably the only thing I'm going to say about him. Uh, I liked this in spite of the muddy sound. So goodbye, Patrick. Okay. Um, but he reminds me very much, uh, and I have no idea if this is an apt comparison in your mind, he reminds me of Art Tatum. Not just in the choice of material, but kind of in his style. So if you read about Haig, you one of the things you hear about him is he's one of the first guys to kind of pick up on Bud Powell's bop mannerisms and to incorporate them thoughtfully in his own style, right? So this is kind of the tag that he's been given. And this is kind of surprising from someone who has that reputation. He, he has an almost florid technique he sounds like Art Tatum in a meditative mood. Like if someone had given Art Tatum some downers <laughs> or just, I don't know how much Art Tatum could drink, but like two drinks beyond what he should drink. If someone had given Art Tatum that much to drink and he was a little fuzzy, I don't, I don't mean fuzzy, if he was a little slowed down, that's what this sounds like to me. He has the same kind of almost cavalier way of changing tempo in mid-song, but not at Tatum's blinding speed, right? Like, you know, right, Tatum yeah. will double and, you know, double again. He feels like, it, it feels to me like he'll change tempos kind of on a whim. There is a, a sense of florid playing at times where he kind of goes on little runs to fill out a line, but never to the point where I go, all right, cut that shit out, or it seems flowery. It just seems kind of tasteful and in control. So I, I mean, I just I wrote down on a piece of paper, meditative Art Tatum. Because mm. um, when you hear Art Tatum, the one thing you don't think when you listen to him is what a what a towerhouse intellect, what a what a meditative player. Mm. You think of Art Tatum like what a just uncompromising technician. How brilliant how fast, how everything. And Haig feels to me a little more thoughtful. There are still some of the touches that I associate with Tatum, but not, not the same overwhelming addiction to speed. Not as many quotes, although there are some. And again, I'm just kind of surprised when I read Bop Guy. And I'm like, really? Bebop, yeah. Bebop, yeah. Not, yeah. Not, not, right. But influenced by Powell, right? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of surprising because this feels like it goes back before Bob to me. This doesn't feel like a Bob date at all. And, of course, Powell, on his ballads, would yes. play kind of floridly. I mean, he did have this kind of romantic style for his slower numbers. Yes. And then he'd get the burning single note lines yeah. for the, the up-tempo ones. Yeah, he does. There's a couple places here. I, I think of this as a little more recital-like. Yeah. That he has, and I guess that's true of Tatum too, right? Kind of thought out a plan for these songs. He incorporates a quote, and I, I slipped my mind, but the first piece he plays, the Brubeck, he kind of throws in a quote from another song towards the end, almost as a motif. I mean, it's more than just one glancing me uh, look at it. 
just as when he does summertime, he brings that same motif that I think Gil Evans used. Hmm. And someday I've got to figure out if that originates with Gil or if he picked it up somewhere. So there are just places where you feel like he's not just kind of letting ideas flow. He's kind of thought through, what am I going to say about this piece? And now he's presenting that. It right. doesn't seem too calculated, but it's it's thought through. It's a little bit more recital-like. It's a little bit less just spontaneous invention. Right. And uh, nothing wrong. Very pleasant. Yeah, the sound is not pristine. The pressing was not pristine. It, it had a hard life and uh, only so much could be done. And again, this is where we start thinking about why do we ever talk about what label something's on? It's because Seabreeze doesn't have the resources of Columbia, right? It's just, right. Or, or even Blue Note, who had at least the, the piano sound was kind of a mixed bag on Blue Note, but in general had an excellent engineer in Rudy Van Gelder and made good sounding stuff. So yeah, it's not a pristine sounding piano. It's not a great instrument. It's not well recorded, uh, which is actually something that haunted Art Tatum's recordings for the most part. They yeah. never gave him an instrument worthy of his talent. So I listened to it. I found it pleasant. I thought the the mix of, of songs, it wasn't too obvious, I guess is what I'm saying. It wasn't shocking or amazing, but you know, a mix of tunes that seemed to work together, hang together well, and weren't just absolutely obvious choices, each one of them. And I didn't know what else to say about this. I mean, there are moments where you really get, okay, this guy can really play. Maybe sounds a little bit patterned, but, you know, he'll do a couple runs. It's like, oh, man, he's got finger speed. But then he'll go back to, as you said, kind of the calmer, slower Tatum style. And so I did some more reading on him because I really didn't know much about Al Hag. And that's where I looked up, well, where, I knew he played with Parker. Where was it? Okay, it was on the... Savoy label live stuff from the Royal Roost, okay, which is, if you're talking about pillars of Charlie Parker, you want the dial recordings, you want the Savoy studio stuff, you want the Royal Roost stuff, and then you probably Verve it be next, right? Those are the four pillars of his best recordings, and there's hundreds of weird, odd things, but that's the bulk of it. And the Roost stuff is important because, I mean, you hear his working band for almost three hours of music, and I mean, it's just priceless, right? It, it's it's really important, Parker. But I don't know that Hague's playing on that struck me one way or another. It wasn't bad. I just, you know, didn't really hypnotize me where Duke Joran's introductions on some of the uh, dial stuff are just very memorable in and of themselves. So I, I did some research on him, and so what do you think about this album if it turns out that Al Hague is an anti-Semitic wife strangler? <laughs> Would, would that change your? <laughs> I suppose I can separate the talent from the man. Look, there are, there are some horrible people who've played some great jazz. Yeah, and uh, so I, I was struck by this question. Uh, apparently, his second wife wrote a novel, not a novel, might have been a novel. I don't know how much of it's true, but this long study of him, not that long ago, is called Death of a Bebop Wife. And her name is... Grange Rutan. Great they, name. Yes, it is. And the, the, in, in the novel or the book, they'll call it in parentheses Lady Hag. I guess she must have been known as Lady Hag back when she was married to him. And then his third wife, Bonnie, died in 1968. And there was some belief that he might have strangled her, but he was let off in the court. And his argument was that she was drunk and had been killed falling down a flight of stairs. Now, I don't understand how you can confuse death by falling down a flight of stairs with death by strangulation, but maybe I've just watched too much CSI. But apparently this book, I've not ordered it yet. I probably will at some point. It's like a 500-page study. She basically argues, no, he was a serial abuser. She was abused. She got away from him. His third wife's family was worried about him. He was sending out warning signs. And then apparently he had 
this moment in the 70s at a gig where he basically told the bass player on the gig, yeah, I killed her. <laughs> so what was it? What was the guy that was on the Jinx? I can't remember his name. I've never seen the show, but there was this HBO documentary about this uh, real estate magnets kid who went around killing people. Mm-hmm. And apparently at one point off, he thinks he's off mic. He says, what did I do? I killed them all, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they finally you know, retrying him. Durst, I want to say. Anyway, it's. So here's the part I don't get. Here's the part I don't get. So anti-Semitic, right? I tend to associate, maybe maybe he's just a subtle racist. I tend to associate, like, if you got one of the objectionable, deleterious forms of racial ignorance, don't you usually have them all, right? Right. Well, and so you know, how can you how can he be anti-Semitic but played with titans? of jazz who are many of whom are african-american well the other thing apparently he's 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 a selective racist (laughs) well and and i'm assuming well and that's not impossible but i and again this is just a claim i really don't know right i I, and of course if you're talking about the early bebop years i'm sure a if you polled the american populace you're going to get a lot more hits on that than you would after the revelations of world war ii right in other words that that it was a much more commonly held belief one of my heroes so many of the great jazz players are jewish yeah tons tons uh yeah Um, no there are are you are you mocking me are you disagreeing i i i guess a few i am having trouble thinking of a lot but um, stan gayetsky well yes stan gets would certainly be one uh, and of course, he makes me anti-Semitic. Art so. Pepper is Pepper Jewish, or is he just? In, let, let's not get into. That. I don't know. All right, fine. But 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 again, I, I have no idea. And that was now the, the whole wife strangling thing is, is a problem. I I don't know. But <laughs> but it did raise. I thought, well, you know. And of course, you don't know. This is a very partially is. Of course, no one knows who Al Haig is now. And so, and of course, he's been dead a long time. And. Clearly, it's it's a crusade for this woman to get a story out. How many people ever read it, I don't know. And whether or not it's completely unbalanced or has any content right. to it, I don't know either. But it did kind of, I said, you know, I've been enjoying this. And in a sense, I think this record more than any, one pull of vinyl is sentimental, especially if you're a little bit older. Mm. And to some degrees, I tend to sentimentalize recordings from not necessarily my childhood, but right before it, right? It's like that era I missed, right? Stuff mm-hmm. like the 50s and 60s recordings of, of people that I never heard and that kind of represent a different time in the culture and especially classical recordings, right? Back when those were kind of mass market products and for whatever reason, it's probably somewhat personal and some of it's probably more cultural in terms of generations tend to look a certain degree behind them for the things they tend to sentimentalized so this one i think especially was the most kind of i just put it on it's just pleasant background music and then this question comes up and i thought well part of it is i guess mostly we joke about jazz musicians being so spectacularly self-destructive right so many right. of them kill themselves right. with drug abuse and it's tragic and it's it's there's a lot of people to blame in that and it's not solely the musicians themselves there's a lot of cultural and political reasons that that happened I don't think it was necessarily a plot by the FBI, but you know, I mean, I think that you can argue that there were social factors there and, and political and police factors that encouraged that that kind of behavior, and then of course penalized it ridiculously harshly. But wow, I mean, what do you think about someone if he is in fact just an out-and-out murderer? And of course, this is as you say, it's a question that art raises all the time, right? Beautiful art, terrible person. So what do you think about that? I, I don't know if I've got an answer for it, but. There's this weird moment. It's like, you know, I'm thinking, oh, this guy from the bebop generation. Oh, is this nice piano recital? All these nice tunes. He's playing them in this kind of emotive way. And it's, he's not bleeding on the keys, but, you know, it's very pleasant. It's kind of romantic. It's definitely not astringent or angular. And then 
oh, really? Man, that's kind of harsh. So I, I, I don't have anything profound to say about it, but that was kind of the interesting angle that came up on this recording. Is like, well, hmm, what's your so, life strangle? So all of that, I have to say, Benny Goodman, yeah. Art, Artie Shaw, Suit Sims, <laughs> okay. Stan Getz, Paul Desmond, Buddy Rich, Terry Gibbs, John Zorn, yeah. Al Cohn, all yeah. of the four brothers, apparently, Alfred Lyon, mm-hmm. Dave Brubeck, Lalo Schifrin. Brubeck is like Indian. Are you saying he's part Jewish? <laughs> I'm he's reading Indian off the dude. website. You're, all uh, right. Don Friedman, Denny Zeitlin, Steve Kuhn, not to mention all of the modern day Jews who we talk about who play. Harry James, Paul Whiteman, <clears throat> Mel Torme, Herbie Mann, Herb Alpert. Composers? Irving Berlin, Jerome Kern, yeah, the Gershwin, Hammerstein, Rogers and Hart, yeah. Lerner and Lowe, Arlen and Harburg. So you're trying to say that Teddy that Charles, there is Steve a conspiracy <laughs> and they're running Mel the jazz industry. Okay, so you two are <laughs> Shelley Mann, <laughs> Victor Feldman, David Eisenson, Dick Hyman, George Handy, Dick Katz. Sam Most. So, so is Red your argument Rod- is your argument that there are, <laughs> there are more Mes- Jews than wasps in jazz? Is that I mean, obviously not more than African Americans, right? I okay, I want you someone, to do- so, someone is throwing out on this list also Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> okay, now we're stretching. Someone else is making jokes. I think Willie the Lion Smith. I don't think that's right. Well, we, we, the Lion of Judah. Yes, we, we we'll do a statistical breakdown and get back to you. We've done one spreadsheet. Lou Tobacken, Steve Grossman. I can cut this out if I want to. <laughs> <laughs> All Producers, right. Oren Keep News. Leonard Feather. Stop reading the internet, Mike. Norman Grand. Stop reading the internet. <laughs> Gotta stop now. The question after that list is, who plays jazz who isn't Jewish, Patrick? I, I can't think of anybody now. <laughs> I remember Louis Armstrong's bar mitzvah very well. I, I, you know, it was a beautiful thing. Yeah, okay, okay. So I have to take some of this back. Someone posted who's very smart on this list. Neither Dave Rubeck nor Paul Desmond were Jewish, although Desmond thought he was. <laughs> well, it was great because he said his name was Breitenfeld or something, and he, I changed it to Desmond because it sounded too Irish, was his joke, you know? Oh, right. But apparently he wasn't Jewish, but he, he uh, thought he was. Okay. So yeah, and, and, and Brubeck, as I said, I always thought of him. Yeah, when I read that, I thought I thought Brubeck was Protestant. I'm almost certain he's Protestant. Well, so. in religion and also uh, ethnically, I think right, he's right. Some, uh, uh, Indian in his, you know, but I think that's correct. Native American or what? Yeah. So, yeah. So just for all my bro- Jewish brothers and sisters out there, I apologize for Patrick's ignorance. <sighs> said Jewish jazz players, and he met me with bemused, ironic, eye-rolling silence. I could see the eye roll through the internet. I could see it. I could see it. So just for all my for, for all my Jewish brothers and sisters, all I have to say to you, Mike, to the podcast, I'm sorry. I apologize on Pat's behalf. I'll hey, Kate he the knows ball. not what he does. <laughs> Except Stan Gatz. Well, he just hated Stan Gatz because he was Stan Gatz. Nothing to do with well, everyone hated Stan Gatz because he was Stan Gatz. <laughs> it was not a great commercial for a anyway, yeah okay fine there absolutely I, I stand corrected I really am sitting but I, I I feel corrected I feel adjusted so uh, anyway those are the four selections anything else to say about Mr. Hag other than that 
he had a lot of people to hate in the jazz industry. Yeah, no, no, nothing else. I I enjoyed the album and uh, especially at that price. You said you paid five bucks for that. Something like it, it, this record store I went to, and uh, it was a weird. I may have told the story. My son was going to a robot competition in St. Louis, and so once his team was eliminated, I was going back to see my parents and spent like an hour before going back up north looking at a record store as I want to do. And so I went to this neighborhood in St. Louis. It's really, really nice. It's near the university, but the, the residential area there is gated communities and multi-hundred-thousand-dollar houses. And then there's a commercial strip that's clearly the college area. And they had a very nice record store there that was quite reasonably priced. They they have not invested in a record-cleaning machine. Maybe that's how they keep their prices low, but they had a pretty good stock. And that's where I got Farmer. And I think that's where I got the Hag, as well as this really cool Spider's Banquet classical album that I like a lot, too. So yeah, every now and then you run across... It, it's funny. It's got to do with, again, is the name known? Is it known to be out of print? So many different factors as to how people right. choose to, to price these things. And Hag is just clearly somebody who there aren't a lot of collectors out there. He's just, well, and surely also the label. I mean, they just look at the label like, what? Seabreeze? And maybe with some reason, given the production values, right? right. It's it's not one of the collectible. And you'd think people. something that just says Blue Note automatically gets marked twelve bucks, fifteen bucks, oh. just because it's Blue Note. Yeah, know? some of them that literally have been used as frisbee catching tools for their dogs will be like fifty dollars. It's like okay, it's unplayable, but it's Blue Note. It's an original. We want you know, and it's like I just don't buy them. But yeah, if it's an original pressing of Blue Note, either you're spending like money that would get you seven or eight steak dinners or it's shit. Right. And I, I, I don't want to do either of those things. So I just don't do it. That's like really wealthy Japanese people are buying all those or, sure. or people of other nations, but, but people with huge disposable incomes who collect and they, they just go for crazy money. And some of that I think just got to do with the mythos of the label. I don't know that you know, the quality of the music of the sound of some of those pressings is that fantastic, but they're very good. I mean, it's a good sounding. That's one reason it's become so collectible is they did a good job recording the stuff. So even the mediocre performances are soothing and pleasant to hear. Yeah, I was. I read an article somewhere in I think it was like the Times, New York Times Magazine, where this guy was trying to predict several hundred years from now when rock and roll is just a, a paragraph in the history book, who the one rock star that people would know that would become emblematic of the whole music, right? In other words, his mm. theory is it'll boil down to one person. Just like, I don't know, Renaissance playwright, it's Shakespeare for most people. Right. I Presumably not. He, he recognizes it. Does he offer not. a hypothesis? He does. He eventually gets to Chuck Berry. He's really? a long time to get there, but that's his theory. It's going to be Chuck Berry. Which, you know, I, who the hell knows? I, right. It's a plausible argument. But my point being, Al Hag has already been winnowed away. Right. Oh, yeah. It's jazz gets boiled down and boiled down for most people. If they've heard anything about it, he was an early casualty of the simplification and the pruning away. And really, probably try to think here, all these players tonight would, would be people that you have to kind of be into the music to have heard of Art Farmer. He's not the first, second, third or fifth trumpet player no. you're probably going to hear about. Same with Kenny Wheeler. That doesn't mean they're not great. I love them both, but they're not famous. They're not well-known avatars of a certain style. They're not one of the great historical figures. Obviously, pulling an Adams very much in that bag. Obviously, Hag. So we're kind of going down the byways. We're going to get a little bit famous, more famous figure next time. I've just seen a Facebook page. All right. Before we go into pop, I just wanted to mention 
our Facebook page is up and running. It's so nice. We, meaning me, post almost every day. It's just it's a what? glorious thing to behold. You've got to see this. You're Follow posting every like day? Yeah, about five sentences. One picture. Are you serious? Of course. You have any idea how slow it is at work right now? Oh. <laughs> it's really <laughs> slow, man. <laughs> I got nothing to do. I got to post. I got to post. Yeah, You're it's true. addict. That's a sad, sad, sad. Is there a really good, I guess I'll have to go to our Facebook page at some point and, and, and chime in. There should be like a really good picture of us. Yeah, well, I posted something on, sort of Paul Newman. What I did was ran. I, I had this this little calendar of of frogs. Really I'm Newman, frogs. by the way, in case you were wondering. You're Redford because you have blonde hair. <laughs> so there's one picture with three frogs on a stick and like two or you know spinning. Paul Newman has blue eyes. Anyway, my son made a beautiful painting of two of these frogs. I have blue eyes. I posted it. <laughs> And I said it was the two of us thinking about what we're going to do for our next podcast. So there's a really cute picture of frogs that represent us on there. And Does one have blue eyes? They have blue skin. Is that close enough? Okay. They're really exotic tropical frogs. Yeah, someday we'll we'll get a caricature up there and, and you know, a silhouette of our beautiful visages will we'll grace the page. It'll happen. But take a look. It's beautiful. Follow us, like us. I don't know why you should do those things. I'm just asking you to do them because I've been told that's a good thing to do. Are we going to start twittering? Start tweet. Are we going to Are we going to tweet? Are we going to be those people now? Are you we going to have I, followers? I got a I got a Twitter account. And I have tweeted twice, and no one's ever retweeted or seen it. And I just I don't think I can quite go that far. Maybe you would like to take that over. You you're welcome to tweet for us at any time. But somehow Facebook's easier to do. I don't know. I guess you don't have to be quite both so of them sound like just a lot of work. And I'd I'd much rather read a book, frankly. So you're welcome to do so. I spend about two minutes on it each day. Uh, look, it's a photograph of the Brad Meldow box set. Look, there's a lot of records in it. I'm gonna make fun of the fact he's frowning. I'm done. You know, it's, it's can, all... can I can you use swear words on Facebook? It's a bad thing to do. I, I don't know. I don't know, Mike. Because I, I really want to post like after everything you write Pat, you ignorant slut. That you can probably do, I think. I think that that's the, hey, there's no swear words in that, so right, yeah. Mark, Mark, Pat, fucking ignorant slut. There we go. And uh, I did post a couple of weeks ago a link to the current spreadsheet of the episodes. Should you want that, you can download that spreadsheet, oh, and I'll update it in a few weeks. So anyway, those things are available now. But now we can talk about any pop music you've listened to recently. String me along My friends say it's wrong They tell me I'm crazy I'm reading the cards And asking the stars The outlook is hazy Whoa, never mind the weather I've downloaded a bunch of stuff to listen to while I was traveling, but nothing... Nothing new, so I have nothing to contribute, which could really kind of be like um, like if we were on television, that could be like the running banner beneath my face. Like, <laughs> nothing to has contribute. nothing to contribute. So I have nothing to contribute to the pop matters. But you, no doubt, have bought eight new vinyl albums and have 75 new things that you've seen or heard. So dazzle us with your I, musical profligacy. Do you have your sunglasses on? Because it's going to get pretty sparkly here. So step back a little bit from the, yeah. I'm going to do a funk special, I think, next week, because I've been listening to a lot of funk and just 
try to get over that quickly. Uh, in terms of music, I did get some vinyl, Mike, because you know, you know whose complete works you need on different colored vinyl. <laughs> No, the cars. It's just absolutely crucial. <laughs> we have the complete cars with like the first album's yellow, but the second one's green, and this one's blue. Yeah. Uh, including door to door, which everybody hates, hates, hates. I heard one side of door to door so far. It's not as bad as everyone says, but then it almost couldn't be. It's not great. Right. And then the other five, I, I'm fond of in various to various degrees, and they did. It's it's interesting. They did a good job. I mean, they sound good. They put them in the nice little envelope well, plastic. Well, they they sound for the. They, they don't sound make, as good as they can. They could. Yes, right. right. It's the cars. It, it will remain the cars. No one needs this box set. Uh, I certainly <laughs> don't. Rico Kasich's three note range. <laughs> but you know he hiccups between each note, and that makes it okay. <laughs> More to the point. So the two new records I've listened to recently. One I got for my birthday. Cat Edmondson. The big picture. So we talked ah, about Cat yeah. back around episode one or so. Yeah, I think that's right. One or two, something like that. It was way down low. And that was her second major record. And we liked it, I think, a fair amount. And she did an earlier one, which the title of it is based on a line from Summertime. And that was a more traditional jazz covers album. And I realized Amazon will stream that to people who have Prime. So I've listened to it a couple times. I really like that album quite a bit. I think it's very successful. The, the arrangements are you know, it's adult listening music. There's no way around it, but the arrangements are interesting. There's some energy behind them. There's some actual jazz soloing on it. You've got to be able to put up with this weird cross of Blossom Deary and, I don't know, more Blossom Deary and, <laughs> uh, oh, just a touch of Joanna Newsom. Just a touch. Uh, I know. I just love Joanna Newsom. <laughs> well, there's, she's, Kat's got an odd voice. I think she's a very good singer, but it's an odd instrument. It's an acquired taste. So wait, uh, this big picture is her latest album. And it was weird because I saw it and I realized, oh, my God, she wrote or co-wrote every song on this. So this is a big change from the last album, which was a mix of originals and covers. And the first album was all covers. And so I thought my problem with it was going to be there's going to be a lot of weak songwriting. And it wasn't. The songwriting, I think she's a pretty good songwriter. Mm. So I liked it. But it's this weird thing where if you're writing all the music and there's no point of view per se, it's just after a while, it's just kind of oddly alienating and almost annoying. It, it From song to song, I think if I heard any one of them in isolation, or at least most of them, I'd like it fine. But when she's doing one song about how this lover isn't good enough to her, and then the next song is this huge kiss-off, just fuck you, lover. And then the next one is a completely different relationship with the lover. And there's no distance provided by the fact that she's doing other people's music. It's just like, well, what is this album about? The fact that you can write songs about every stage of love, but mm. none of them are any more quote-unquote authentic than the rest. I mean, they're all like exercises. And they're good. I mean, she's pretty good, and her co-writer's pretty good, and the arrangements are pretty good. They're witty adult music arrangements, right? They're not going to scare you. There's nothing real loud or harsh sounding, but they're witty and, and they're they're good. But yeah, by the end of it, I'm just kind of like, I mean, she throws in like a couple Joni Mitchell sounding things and there her voice almost sounds traditional. It, it's pretty good. And there's one that's almost country. It, it's, 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 it, it's a weird, weirdly unfocused album that it feels like the whole time she's pushing you further away from who she is in a strange way, much more so where I felt like I knew a lot about 
a lot more about her when she was singing standards or what I, I don't know how to explain it. But when she was singing other people's music and bringing her catness to it, I felt like, oh, that's what Cat's about. And now I'm like, I don't Cat's a really good songwriter. Let's get her a job for somebody else. So anyway, it was a disappointment, but by no means is she, she's still talented. She can still sing really well if you can put up with the weird kind of voice she's got. It's just, I'm not sure where it's all going. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I got this album by this teenager from somewhere in Scandinavia named Aurora. Mm. All my demons greeting me as a friend. And the New York Times turned me on to this. And boy, I don't think she's got a thought in her head, but it's really kind of fun, popish music it's got uplift. It's like if you were calmer and sweeter nature than Florence plus the machine, but not that much. I, you know, she's. It's not that. Not quite that line of angst and that really heavy-duty romanticism that Florence is pushing, but somewhat in that broad sing-along choruses, intelligent production. Not sure there's a whole lot going on between the ears kind of thing. I I like it despite myself. It's it's just kind of fun. Every song you can hum along with. I wouldn't want to have her as a student in a philosophy class. I don't know that she'd do that well, but it's kind of fun. And there may be some dark hidden undercurrents there that I'm missing because I haven't learned all the lyrics yet, but I'm thinking they're not that dark or undercurrenty, despite what the time said. But just pop it in. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. You'll probably hum along with it like I do, unless that style of music just drives you nuts. So liked it better than I thought I would, I guess. All right. And that concludes episode 94 of the Jazz Bastard podcast. As always, you can reach us at mike at jazzbaster.com and at pat at jazzbaster.com. You can download the podcast from www.jazzbaster.com and from iTunes. You can reach us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page now. Please feel free to post there, like it, or do whatever it is one does with the Facebook page. And as mentioned in the episode, our spreadsheet of episodes has been posted to Facebook and will be updated on a periodic basis. Tune in next time as we do an episode devoted to Freddie Hubbard, including a couple of crucial Sidemen appearances and three albums under his own name. Until then, take care. And ponder the fact that whether or not Al Haig actually strangled his third wife, we are listening to him playing Never Let Me Go on this outro. <laughs>